Do you think it's reasonable for me to take to Mexico? Well, how, how long are you there to start? Uh, four nights, five days. Right. But tomorrow's going to be a long day because uh-huh. my flight is at 6 a.m. Yeah. And I mean, what are you doing there? I mean, I don't think you're going to be, you know, well, reading I'm just books. well, I'm just with my best friend. It's not like so for you listening. This is my bachelorette party, <laughs> although it's not like yeah. a real bachelorette party because it's just me and my best friend. Yeah. Somebody referred to it this week as an in and out party hmm. because she just got divorced and I'm just getting married. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like the whole point God. of us two doing this. Is so that we can like go down and like drink mojitos and like lay mm-hmm. by the pool. So the laying by the pool is where the books would come in. Yes. This is me trying to or like if keep it rains because it yeah. will rain. Uh-huh. So like when it rains, we have to keep ourselves busy and like I don't uh-huh. speak Spanish, I can't watch the television. Yeah. Man. So like how many books? Oh. Like fifteen? Um, fifteen. I was gonna say two. <laughs> I never re- I don't read that much on vacation. Truthfully. Really? Yeah. Oh no. no. It. I just like to. You know, I like to bring one book and then space it out, however long it takes. I. It's like you got to have the one trip book. When I was than, in Morocco yeah. last year, I only brought four books, and I finished the last one like two days before I went home, and it was honestly hell. Yeah. No, I'm 15 books. How are you even? No. I mean, way. not actually. I you're mean, but maybe bring, I don't know. I can't imagine you're going to need more than three, two, and two. Two? Two. two. But you know, I'm reading romance novels. Okay, then maybe you can go a little faster. Like eight? Um, If it's romance novels, yeah. We're going to mm. just blow right through those. I also have two audiobooks that I've already downloaded. Mm-hmm. So two audiobooks. I'll probably do audio on the plane. So it'll be one. I'm not sure how long this flight is. Maybe like a third of one of those. Yeah. And then and then definitely like a a.m. book and a p.m. book. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> people read so much faster than me. I know I don't have AM books and PM books. I have like the book for this next few weeks. You know, uh, like it takes me forever. Well, you should start reading some romance. <clears throat> no, no, I, I should start reading some romance. Mm-hmm. Really spice things up over yeah. at the Hain House. Yeah, I can. Uh, I can send you home with a few titles. Please do. I want them to all be like. I want them to have like dukes and ladies. In oh, them. That's, yeah. That's gonna be my thing. I think. Uh, yeah, of course. It's everybody's thing. Yeah. There are so yeah. many more dukes right. in romance right. novels than have ever existed ever I don't in the know, entire world. I don't even know what a duke is, to tell you the truth. Like it's, I, I pick, it's just like some like philandering royal rich guy. You're not wrong. <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah. yeah, and there's always like a mysterious duke, right, yeah. as if like there were enough dukes that there that would be like wait. one that you will have never heard of. <laughs> Perfect. Um. Yeah. So, well, speaking of dudes, yeah, I was, I was about to do it too. You're doing great. Uh, oh man, I talked through the transition. You shit. always talk shit. through the transition. Go. go okay. Do it. Speaking of dukes, <laughs> they're giving romance bookstore or romance booksellers uh-huh. TV deals now. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm so we're looking at this like Deadline Hollywood article that basically says like, yeah, this this store called the you know the Ripped Bodice Bookstore. Um, they're with yeah, they're with Sony Pictures yeah. TV. They're gonna have yeah. a whole show about like their customers and well, stuff. Well, the founders of the Ripped Bodice. I mean, the Ripped Bodice is the only romance uh, bookstore 
in the United States. Yeah. And it's and it's around LA. It's somewhere Is in or near LA. Yes. There's only one romance bookstore only like one. devoted. Mm-hmm. Only one. And it's these like two young sisters that opened it and uh-huh. started it. And now they're gonna be like making like jaunty properties because mm-hmm. they're like super well known. Mm-hmm. I'm just so excited. I don't know why. I mean, like, why it doesn't really make a ton of sense for like a bookstore to have a movie deal or like a, a TV deal, because like, is it is it gonna be like that the hero is like appropriately shelving, like knows the alphabet <laughs> and is appropriately shelving the well, books? I think it's gonna be. It's got to be messy customers. Mm. Is the way I see it. Like, because I'm mm. picturing this as like reality TV. Oh, you know what I mean. I'm kind of like, picturing it as like a Love Actually sort of oh, thing you want, where like, a everybody. Story. You want like a scripted story. I mean, it's romance, so yes. Oh, I want, like, messy reality TV where, like, I walk in and it's, like, my, you know, like, there's, like, a little overlay with, like, Eric Kane and then, like, under is, like, my title and it's, Looking like, for dukes. It's, like, <laughs> yeah, area man, you know? <laughs> and I just, like, come in and get really agitated because I don't have the specific book I want. They and don't have I enough have to, dukes. Like, I, like, hide in the corner while they're reshot. You know, like, that's the kind of stuff that I want the show to be about. Yeah, but. no, I want it to be utterly trope driven and predictable, like romance I'm anthology not, is what idea. I want it to oh, be. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, like like a black mirror, but for like kisses. Yeah. I feel like you could also you Sony, really I am also available. <laughs> this podcast is available. Us, yeah, how come we don't have a TV show? Eric yeah, already a has a pilot show. about a man <laughs> yeah. with an octopus. God damn. <laughs> Humanity lives on. Um but <laughs> Um, I'm excited for them. I'm very perplexed by how this all came to be, but I'm super here for it. I feel like it doesn't quite take into account, though, like the the now like online nature of romance publishing. Like I want someone in this show to be like in the corner writing a 3000 word or 3000 page romance novel for Kindle Unlimited. You know, yeah, like you need someone to be like doing some book stuffing in the corner, like during the shelving. Because it all <laughs> has to happen in the store, right? Oh, sure. Like so like maybe in the back, there's like a table of like. You know, a bunch of people on their laptops, like trying to game Amazon. Mm, that's good. There's also people like a like a little like a, a down on his luck lawyer filing <laughs> like <laughs> filing bad <laughs> trademarks. Yeah. Can we get? Yeah, I want like in the corner to have that. Would, that would be the perfect plot for this. Um, you need something like that in there too. Yeah, the down on his luck lawyer, just like filing <laughs> trademarks for anything that you might ever need. Yeah. Well, I suppose with that we should say, welcome. To this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. Um, so we're going to talk about a few different things today, tech-based and not, um, all sorts of other kind of stuff. Um, before we get into that, how about the basic rundown, though, huh? Yeah. So if you were listening to this in the front half of the week, I am in Mexico. So give me a big wave. I will <laughs> hopefully, if I have good internet connection, will be keeping you apprised on the number of books that I read just to make Eric feel bad. I so watch out for that. I predict you don't read more than five. Oh, challenge accepted. Yeah. Do audio? Did the audiobooks I listen to on the plane count? Of course not. That's not true. They totally count. They definitely they count. count. They, they count. They count. It counts. They count. all counts. I'm bad. Everyone else is good. You guys <laughs> win the stupid audiobook fight. Um. Uh, so we also will be having this week for you the query show. And next week will be the first page show. And then after that, 
um, will be our special episode. We were intending to maybe do something that was not like a Q&A or advice, but y'all have gotten really messy with the Taloon It May Concerns. Yeah, that was a that's a great development. It is. People are just sending us like who knew we were sitting on such a treasure trove of mess. Yeah, it's great. So I, I mean, like I know that we typically do Taloon It May Concern on the free episodes, but I think I want to just rip through as many of them as possible. <laughs> that so that be might funny. be yeah. our third episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely stay tuned. As a reminder, we will be a little bit less available the end of September through mid October because Eric and I are both getting married two weeks apart because we both. Um, are really bad at self-preservation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be around, but just not quite as much, and we'll keep you attuned to our schedules for releasing content as we move forward. So send us, as always, your queries and your first pages and your messy-ass questions to us. Mm-hmm. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Email the bird. Email uh. the bird. <laughs> so this first thing we've got to look at is... Something that I sort of thought was going to start happening, you know, for a little while now, and I think it's kind of a predictable route that we've arrived at this point. Um, and basically, what we've got here, and this is courtesy of a Writer Beware article that we kind of heard about it, but um, someone has basically set up a salaried novelist position, right? It's for a, he- a publishing company, right, yeah. It's like so this publishing company, you know, this kind of new startup thing. It's run by a hedge fund guy. Um, and basically, the premise here, as I understand it, is he pays you, the novelist, a salary, and in return, you sit there and write the book like it's your day job. And in return, it is your day job, right? And in return, because well, it's your day job because you're not allowed to have any other job. Is That's one of, true. is one of the key traits here. And also, you give away your copyright, you give away all the other rights, you give all the way all this stuff. So basically, it's it takes the you know, the uncertainty of the novelist lifestyle. I think, like, if you're looking for, like, where this angle's opening is, like, it takes, okay, well, the reason nov- people can't write novels is because it's an uncertain life. It's because there's no structure to it. You don't know where the money's coming from, all that kind of stuff. So this person has basically said, do this with through us. We'll publish the book. I mean, they've got, you know, it's like you're saying, like, it's eventually going to be kind of a publishing wing, right? Yep. And... We'll, you, we'll, we'll just be full service. We'll pay you to write it. You'll give away the rights. You know, you'll already have the deal. We Because one thing one thing also worth considering here is that, you know, novels are almost, all, especially debut novels, are always sold on, they got to be complete, right? But this is sort of different. Like now, you can get paid before you've written the book. And, but you get, end up, the, the trick here is that you end up giving away everything. So I think the idea behind this you know, literary company, this publishing company is a very old one, right? It's mm-hmm. kind of centered around the idea of patrons, which yeah. has, of course, been updated on things like Patreon, <laughs> uh, yeah. like we use uh, for the modern age. But it's kind of the idea where if somebody else pays for you to be creative, you can have the space to be creative. Um, it's where the the rub is, however, is in that... You have to sign away all your rights, right? So De Montfort Literary will own your books that mm-hmm. you publish. Mm-hmm. Um, they also, even though you can't copyright these legally, they will own your ideas that you will have to buy back. Mm-hmm. Um, they will be giving you the computer and any kind of appropriate um 
pieces of technology that you need to write your project. Yeah. Um, they make you go through all sorts of weird, like, psychometric, like, examinations. That was crazy. That part really weird. Yeah. Me out. And you have to sign a ton of non-disclosure uh, non agreements. Even before yeah. they sign you. And you um, have to kind of write to specified, like, an algorithm, right? They, you know, and we'll be bringing back the idea of the 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 badness of algorithms <laughs> in publishing in general but like they have an algorithm that will say you know what is what is sellable and what you should be working on but there's no guide to what the output will be uh -huh. there's no guide to you know like how you're supposed to live or where you're supposed to live or what this what this structure looks like and so basically like <clears throat> It's bad, right? And we know it's bad, and writer beware put together a really, really good article about this. But it made me start thinking quite a bit that, you know, so this this guy that started it is a hedge fund manager. Mm -hmm. He knows nothing about publishing. He wrote a book. His book is going to be the one that releases first. Mm -hmm. um, and he's, you know, I love it when, like, money guys come into publishing and they're like, we can change everything. And then they, like, know nothing about how <laughs> right. this business works. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting idea, though. You know, the the paying the writer to just make stuff. Well, so to get into that, um, because in a lot of ways, it's kind of like I was saying, this does feel like a natural extension of where we've been headed for a long time. You've yeah. got one, you've got book selling that is increasingly based on you know, algorithms, right? And we're, like you said, we're going to yep. get into that a little bit later. So, like, you've got them all of a sudden, you know, this is a publisher that wants to kind of take on that feature from the jump, right? Like, that wants to, hey, you've got to hit these certain beats according to this design we've come up with. And, the you know, the other thing it's, it's responding to is, of course, the fact that, like, it's very, very difficult to be a novelist right now as your job. And so it says, okay, well, We'll give you that value, right? We'll say you can actually be the full-time novelist. The problem is you basically have to sign your life away in order to do it. And that's where I think, like, because there's a version of this, I think, that as described, a lot of people would go for. Yeah. Right? You know, stability in exchange for being able to kind of to write a book. I think a lot of people would take that, truthfully. And so I think it's worth kind of digging into what is bad about this so that then because you know like you're saying like there is a there is a good version of something yeah. like this it doesn't really exist yet but there's like a a version of this plan that isn't run by like a hedge fund guy who needs you to you know sign away all your rights and take a psychometric yeah. test and like do all this crazy stuff um that maybe works but so let me just like on the most basic level as possible Laura like what what about this kind of model what like weirds you out about it? Like, why would you tell writers not to do this? So we can kind of explore then what might be a better version of it, you know? Because the rhetoric is all about, you know, you'll have time for writing. The writing will be your own. You get to do what you want. But it's very clear that you don't get to do what you want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you just go from, you know, a worker in a shop or an office to a worker who's basically just being forced to create content all the time like it's something it, I feel, to specification yeah. right like it's it's kind of it's supposed to feel like it is the antithesis of the gig economy that we're in right now like if you look at like paid journalists like salaried journalist positions yeah are just disappearing right and it's turning into gigs and right. that is something that people are pushing back against obviously because it's really hard to live when you're hustling all the time um 
but I feel like this is that just with more trappings. Well, it's well, it's I almost yeah. I mean, I, I see what you're saying. It's also like they're offering the carrot here is the stability, right. right? It's the stability and the opportunity, but it's also like serfdom was a pretty stable lifestyle. Yeah, too, you know, that's very <laughs> accurate. <laughs> like you didn't really have to. Um, there wasn't a lot of like gig uncertainty when you were like <laughs> you under were just, the feudal system. <laughs> you were just always going to be a serf. Yeah. Like, you know, that was a life where you didn't really worry about what was going to happen next either. So um, and that was terrible because it restricted you in every way and it took away all your ability to kind of move and do things for yourself and, and, and leave it. And, and exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's actually key. that's a key one. And leave it and like, you know, vary on it if something comes up. And here I, you just see like. And I guess what, what kind of ekes me out about it is, and we're going to see more of this. This is not going to be the last version. It's going to come from someone, like, if you read this post, and we'll link out to it. Like, this person has kind of had a shady history, even outside of publishing. Like, it's a model itself that seems to be kind of, that raises all sorts of red flags, like, separate from, you know, the kind of fundamental mechanism itself. Um, but you're going to see cleaned up versions of this yeah. coming. Because the, the problem that needs to get solved you know, for writers right now is stability. That's that's one of the main draws of like the MFA, for instance, is, hey, you're part of this program, right? Mm-hmm. You hear and for the next two years, you know where you're going to be. You're going to just be able to write, you know, like the or one writer's residency exactly. that are it's, shorter versions of that. It's that sort of thing. And what this one kind of takes it further and says, we'll actually, you know, we'll pay you the salary and you'll get and we'll publish it and, and we'll publish it. And that's the other part. It's like, what do we think? You know, and it says here, you know, they're trying to come up with their own, like, e-reader software so that they can almost literally just control every step of the chain. Like, if they own, they literally own the writing all the way through the publishing chain, like, in, into the selling. You know what I mean? Like, they're trying to do it that way, which is something that um, this person isn't going to accomplish, but Amazon certainly is going to in a little while. And I've been thinking a lot about how this could work. Yeah. Right? Because I right. love the idea of... creating spaces where people can just like do their stuff like what kind of books could we get if if certain writers didn't have to worry about their rent you Mm -hmm. know what i mean like what what kind of work could we do if you didn't have to work second shift Mm -hmm. um and i think the solution there is not is is more um grassroots like i i i have studied intentional communities quite a bit right where you know like in worst case scenario they're cults best case scenario they're like quakers (laughs) um (laughs) you know and it's just a bunch of people like communally living and and like sharing in a lot of in a lot of responsibilities Mm -hmm. and so like i'm kind of i'm i've been thinking about like what an intentional writing and publishing community would look like and maybe it looks like you know a a shared house that is in you know maybe people live there but definitely they work there Mm -hmm. and you're part of this and you know you you know maybe you all have part-time jobs and you all pay in and then you know kind of split that equally and you you know and once your work is created everybody works together to help publish it and market it and and push it forward like if you could make a like grassroots like collective 
yeah. of a publisher and writer like system. Sure. Like, because there's the infrastructures in place for like self publishing, right? The infrastructure in place. I'm wondering with that where like because you mentioned like part time jobs. Like for me, yeah. the equation here is like where's the money coming from and what is getting tri- what are you giving up in exchange for that money? Like because like here it's like you're giving away basically any bit of leeway and wiggle room and options you have in exchange for the money. And Mm -hmm. so like you talk about like grassroots movements, which I think is probably where this should come from. Like it's going to come from funding from people who are not trying to own your work or take away, like the owning the copyright and stuff is to me the biggest red flag. It's like you should not have to sign away your work just because some, like that's just not, that's not how publishing should work. And, um, I think, like, whether the money comes from grassroots organizations or, like, you could see, like, you know, maybe a publisher, you know, maybe, like, a big five publisher is like, okay, we want to do some program like this, and they decide to fund something. That'd be dope. And, and that isn't grassroots, but you could see that working in a way as long as it's, like, focused on being a little bit less self-serving and more benevolent. And that's, yeah. And that's hard to say because, you know, you're asking a company to kind of front money in a way that maybe there's a little more risk involved. You know, maybe the novelist doesn't get the, you know, the book produced in the way that you want. Maybe, um, I don't know, there's all sorts of things. But, like, the point is that it has to be, like, you're never going to get where we need to go if we're treating, like, um, if you're treating novelists as labor that can be exploited. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's got to be something that comes from, like, we talk all the time about, like, you know, is publishing an, an art artistic endeavor or, or is it a business? And the answer, of course, is that it's both. But, when I think about this, um, like this needs to lean into the artistic instincts more than the business yeah. because otherwise you're going to end up with situations where you've got writers doing living lives that are antithetical to the sort of creative space you know you need and sort of the organic places that actually an actual writing life comes from as opposed to just being like shackled to the desk and <laughs> well maybe then the answer is is because i think like where the exploitation comes in is relying on a single benevolent patron yes. to take care of you that's true too and so maybe the solution is that like the publishers the collective mm-hmm. like everybody helps edit and you know and and gets the book out there of everybody that's involved in the writing mm-hmm. Um, and they all help for each other's books. They all edit each other's books. They all help design each other's books. They help the marketing copy. They, you know, put in for design, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. like maybe where the money comes is for the people who are going to want to read it on the back end. Like maybe, maybe it's like a creative, like a crowdfunded, like creative think tank. That's what I, so the crowdfunding is is where it gets really interesting to me because I think that can work and you're seeing more and more examples across different different fields where people are crowdfunding, you know, things like that, you know, to get people actually functioning in a way like where they're basically combating that uh, you know, the instability that comes with trying to do any basically any kind of work anymore yeah. that isn't um, you know, really well salaried. Um and but yeah, no, I mean that's that's definitely part of the answer. You get everybody pitching in you know, and trying to kind of create a, you know, a commune, you know, some sort of collective. And it's like, I, but when it comes from like a company like this, you know, or any company, like I said, you know, because you're going to see, I truly believe you're going to see Amazon start offering these sorts of programs. You're going to see other, you know, I bet that you will see a publisher start offering this. And I think that they should, like, I don't, 
I don't hate the concept. I just, I think that it has to come with a few less strings attached. Yeah, it has to be less profit focused is what it needs to be. Yeah. Like this idea that they want to couple this with like an e-reader platform and stuff like that. It's just, I don't know that that is quite how this needs to go. Um, (laughs) But it's certainly interesting. It is. It is. And, you know, like if if you are like actually making good on that, like joke, you tell all of your writer friends about how you should just start a commune, like definitely (laughs) hit us up because that is really fascinating and we'd love to know more. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, Eric, I think it's time. It's time. Yeah, we were back. We're back to the well, folks, because we've got something we haven't done in a while. But we, of course, have a I always forget the acronym, the a fiction writer under an FBI investigation of the week. Did I get it? Or it's maybe? Maybe that's I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Really, it had a really long horrible hashtag that everyone yelled at me about, yes. so I quit doing it. Um, but anyway, but we've the got fiction. We found <laughs> the or, or no, 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 I don't even think it's fiction necessarily, but I think it's the writer under FBI yeah. investigation of the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Okay. Um, but anyway, this um this this week's, I guess, you know, it's been a while. Maybe this month. So we'll see how <laughs> close we get back to it. But we've got my friend and yours, Susan Sontag. Um, everyone's favorite um, essayist and critic and person, you know, general writer at large. Um, and she came on to Hoover's FBI. All this is Hoover, too, by the way. He really seemed to hate writers. Yes. Was, <laughs> yes, he did. Or any kind of lefty voice of any kind. But I um, in the, you know, late 60s. Um, you know, her file, it says here, and I'm reading from this delightful uh, Lit Hub article that, and they, I'm glad that they've kind of picked up this beat too whenever they can. I know they had, um, so I just find this content endless, endlessly interesting. But um, what, did, what did Susan do? Well, she was, she went to Vietnam. Um, yeah, she did a bunch she of, was talking about the yeah, Vietnam War. She did a bunch of Vietnam War stuff. Uh, she went there, it's North Vietnam um, in the late 60s. Um, as, you know, I think at the request of the government there. Um, and so she got on the list as kind of being anti-war, you know, pro, you know, resistance to, you know, kind of the American war effort. And she kind of started getting investigated there. Um, and the reason I really kind of laughed at this is at the very end, um, we're told that she was eventually, you know, the file eventually got closed because she was deemed to be more of an irritant than a threat. Oh, put that on my tombstone. Which I relate to as someone (laughs) who is not a threat, but more of an irritant. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, um, so basically, um, yeah, what we've got here is just, you know, another writer who kind of came, you know, into opposition of the entire American, you know, imperial project and ended up on a list. And do you ever think about (laughs) what 50 years from now, like, Uh like the... The government structures underneath Trump, like mm-hmm. when it comes out, who's all being in, watched and investigated? Yeah, fascinating. It's going to be. I mean, it's going to be every political writer of color. Yeah. Um, it's going to be every. We know for a fact, basically, that it's every you know socialist writer right now. Um, it's you know anyone of, of any of that kind of progressive you know anti you know, surveillance state, anti, you know, police state, anti sort of American authoritarianism. Um, those are the folks that are going to show up. I'm and... curious about, like, whose tweets are going to show up. Like, if it's just going to be, like, 
if the loon is going to be on an FBI list yeah. in 50 <laughs> years. To, yeah, we should definitely, <laughs> I would love like a little file that's like, it's like, you know, they always do these, like whenever they do these articles, there's always like, you know, the kind of the scanned old pages, you know, yes. with like redacted stuff all over it. And like, I want it to be like some like awful tweet of ours has been like, you know, slathered on this page. And it's like, what does he mean by this? When he says email the bird, is that, is that code for... Is that code for some sort of insurrection? And the answer, of course, is yes. If you're listening, um, FBI, we are definitely plotting a coup. Watch uh, them like be putting these yeah. onto like physical cassette tapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. these recordings, they'll just pull from the internet in, and like, put on cassette tapes <laughs> in like a drawer somewhere in like a back like cold storage room. This, yeah, is definitely gonna have to make it into our publishing rpg because i love oh, this yeah, idea we should, yeah we should do that that'd be yeah, great we gotta destroy the file or something yeah some some sort of like hard-boiled detective rpg with jane and kevin finding out that they you know once tweeted something about milo and it's you know gonna destroy their lives now yeah that'd be amazing um <laughs> so the last the last detail i found interesting about the the sontag case here you know she was as um you know, she was kind of watched for four years or so, according to this released file. But at the very end, there's this bit where it says um, they eventually decided that they couldn't, like, bring her in and interview her because of her status as a writer, it says. And I found that to be interesting. It's like she almost got too famous to, like, be watching anymore or to be able to do anything. And it gets into that really interesting idea of, like, how clout like, can actually affect how, you know, the government or, like, agencies like this deal with you, you know? And I don't know. It's an interesting thought. Like, you know, as as you say, like, when we – because right now it feels a little bit like, um, you know, we can look back at, you know, the, the 60s and the, the civil rights era, the Vietnam War, that you know, that period. And we've got kind of a clear picture, like you were saying, of who is being looked – who was being looked at, like, what the FBI's concerns were. Mm-hmm. You know, it was civil rights leaders. It was – Communism. Communism. It was, um, you know, writers writing anti-war stuff, you know. And um, it will be interesting to see how, like, fame and clout kind of intersect with that in our era, you know, because, mm-hmm. like, I do think that there is a certain sense that, you know um, – you know, like here, they, they list as their rationale. Like, they don't want to interview, they didn't want to, you know, really hassle her too much because she was famous. She was going to write about yeah, it. Yeah, exa- like, you know, they didn't want the embarrassment. And, like, you could picture something similar happening now in a way that, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, you know, the FBI does whatever it wants now, but um, it's, I don't know, it's tricky. And it's interesting, to, it will be interesting to see kind of how, um, you know, federal investigation kind of intersects with who's having successful writer careers versus maybe the people that they, think are a little bit more approachable you know i want the loon to get big but not big enough so that nobody can talk to me like it is now my dream to be like brought into a too cold like fbi interrogation room and like given bad coffee and asked about like why i keep tweeting to stephen king about like (laughs) being my dad well they won't they won't break me because i love bad coffee um, I'll you just really like, do. I'll be like sitting there, like, mm, this is it. it's like nice and cold. I, I love this. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, if we like disappear forever, um, you know what happened to us, I yeah. guess. Um, anyway, <laughs> but that was your um, writer under FBI investigation of the week. Excellent. I think the problem with the hashtag was I put the comma in, like after oh, investigation. Oh yeah, so it broke. <laughs> Yeah. But there is a comma. Um, it's very important to have. Yeah, the, the, comma. Uh, the, the comma splice is key to most of the 
um, most of the things I write. So um, that's yeah, that is important. Excellent. Okay, moving on. Yes. Uh, or actually, like cycling back to algorithms, mm-hmm. right? So like the algorithms that turn you into a surf for Demon Fort <laughs> Literary. Um, there, oh, there have been like the most algorithms that you hear about in publishing have to do with sales, right? It has uh-huh. to do with like yeah. the algorithm said that this was successful or, you know, the algorithm put this in this highly specific Amazon category mm-hmm. or it flagged it for content that it didn't have. And um, we kind of had two sides of the algorithm spectrum yeah. this week. Um, the first one is that like Amazon took down nine books from a real bad dude who goes by the name of Roosh, who is like a like a huge homophobe and a reactionary reactionary misogynist and like won't let female journalists like interview him without first sending a picture like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, which I feel like it can be argued that that's that is like a net positive. That Amazon did. Well, so that's the thing with it, right? It's like, so they, yeah, they basically took this guy's books, um, this person who, um, you know, writes pretty pro, I mean, frankly, you know, pro-sexual assault material, um, obviously has kind of a history of not only like organized, like real, not even just like personal, but like organized misogyny and, you know, even, you know, some white supremacy in here from the look of it. But, you know, they, they decided this person doesn't get to be on the Amazon marketplace anymore. And I think everyone... Well, not all of the books, just nine of them. Right. But, they're, you know, they put a dent in it. And I think that you and I and anyone would look at that and say, yeah, that's good. It's the same thing as, like, you know, kicking Nazis off Twitter. You know, like, it's this is something we think is good and can happen, you know. And it's it feels straightforward and um, it's based on a decision someone made. And then, you know, I look at... Our other story, mm-hmm. this you know that we kind of wanted to dovetail with it, and so let's talk about that one just for a yeah, hot yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. and so uh. Target, so this is not a, this is not Amazon, but I think the point is going to link um, Target and their you know their book selling you know copy and everything. It was found out the other day that they were scrubbing certain words from descriptive copy, and um which obviously not only changes the description of the books it makes them harder to search for you know that's sort of mm-hmm. like it it affects everything and specifically so, they were scrubbing the word queer and mm-hmm. in a lot of places replacing it with trans and then they scrubbed trans and then so and what's interesting so obviously that too feels like you know i mean they're going to say that that was you know a choice by the you know the computer or something you know so they've got some algorithm set up where the um, the the defense for that is that uh, queer is an offensive term. Yeah, no, I mean it gets it gets into pretty straightforwardly, you know, toxic territory pretty fast. I mean, they also say here. I mean, just to even tell the full story, you know, they got rid of they scrubbed the word Nazi off the site too, which is, I think. I mean, I think we would all be able to look at that for one second and say that that's a mistake too, right? Because there's plenty of books with the word Nazi in them that you know would be. You would need to read like not, you know, plenty of, you know, history, you know, modern political stuff, anything, you know, the, the word Nazi, you, you need it as it because, because it's a word that the idea that you would scrub that term from copy I doesn't think scrub the fact we, that there are Nazis right, out there. Right. We can all agree that that is a bad move for the common good. Right. Um, but so you've got kind of these two sides, you know, with this target thing, it feels especially almost 
misguided in both in both the you know the cases. Obviously, you don't want to scrub words like queer or transgender from copy, and you, and you know on the flip side, you don't want to scrub you know not. I mean, it looks like Hitler got um, you know as a term got taken out of copy as well. Um, both of those, you can look at that and see that clearly this was sort of the result of in you know like a an algorithm or a computer program that basically just like decided that these are the offensive terms and out of you know and out of context yeah. you know this is what this is what we have to get rid of and it feels kind of like you can look at it and say oh well you know you can blame the computer and the reason like this story links to the other one for me is because we have this tendency when we talk about technological things happening in publishing whether it's stuff Amazon is doing like with all their um, you know, with Kindle Unlimited, you know, especially I know we've talked about it in recent past or like, you know, any of their sales algorithms, you know, which books show up where, you know, or how do certain things get promoted when other things kind of get set aside, you know, what gets, um, you know, popularized, what doesn't, um, all that kind of stuff. And then you see, you know, this stuff with Target, anytime something bad happens in publishing technology, right, where, you know, some sort of computer thing happens and we all agree that it's bad. The first thing everyone does is is say, "Well, it was the computer's fault. It was an algorithm, mm-hmm. right? You blame this the was tech. this was a malfunction of the technology. Obviously, no one, you know, no person would try to, um, you know, scrub these things. Yeah. But like as we've seen, it's. I think we need to talk about these things in a, in a different way, and I think we need to acknowledge that even when decisions are made by algorithms or by you know any sort of computer program people still build them it's people still (laughs) built them and they are eventually human choices even if the human choice was to set the thing up the way it's been set up yeah and i mean you take into consideration the fact that apple fails to recognize like the appropriate person and face recognition software for you know people of east asian descent yeah i mean like that's a problem Or, or like you know with you know with something like twitter where it feels like white supremacists are allowed to run rampant and if you respond to any of the harassment, you're the one who gets banned. You know, I mean, it's you get the sense that these these are not neutral structures is maybe the point I want to make. Like and they are human choices. And I think we should want them to be human choices, mm-hmm. truthfully, because and that's why we brought up that first, you know, that Amazon story of getting rid of this kind of, you know, misogynist guy. That's a human choice. Right. They made someone a person looked at that situation and said, this person shouldn't be on our marketplace and he should go. And that is a choice made by a person that I think is a really positive one. And there is something there, though, about the way that Amazon has talked about uh-huh. that particular yeah. about that particular removal, because they're kind of like even in doing a good thing, like objectively, it's a good thing. Yeah. There's still like there's still kind of this idea that a, a marketplace in this capitalist society needs to be apolitical right and so and what they're doing in a lot of ways is hiding behind the algorithm and the terms of their like content and flagging that not like we are not a company that promotes this they're hiding behind it in a different way and i think that that is such a critical point and a really good one and the reason i think it's key is because with all these tech companies whether it's um you know amazon or you know here you know target will eventually you know release some statement that says it's um (laughs) you know oh the computer did now that we now that we the people know about it we'll fix it you know um it just takes it lets you put off any sort of moral judgment yeah you know it lets you say 
the tech is out of our hands. We've put, you know, we are neutral. We are simply the purveyors of the technology. And as such, we don't hold any human moral responsibility for what that tech does because it was simply set up in a neutral way and the results are what they are. This is kind of what you see, like, you know, the other day when um, every social site banned Infowars except for Twitter. <laughs> and, like, their reasoning was, which I think applies here too, but for better and worse, was just that they... Um, you know, that they viewed themselves as a neutral space. Yeah. We created the rules to be neutral, and so we can't change them. Yeah, we created this space, and what other people do with that space is our our hands are tied. It's not our business. And what you end up finding, though, is that, one, that isn't true because they make all sorts of, you know, there's very clear power imbalances about who gets, you know, catered to and who gets banned. I still don't have my check mark. (laughs) I would say... (laughs) I would say the real problem with all this is that Laura isn't verified yet. Um, but, no, I mean, I guess all of this is, you know, this is all obviously a lot of different stories and a lot of different things. But I think the fundamental point that I really want to get across is that when we talk about technology as it relates to publishing and anything, but we can't talk about it as though it just came from nowhere. Right. It came from people. And people, the people who created it need to be responsible and for And they're it. building this, and, they're using that technology to build structures that they can hide behind. And that will end up having outcomes that are not apolitical. You know, the, that's, you're so right about the line, you know, they want to claim neutrality or apolitical. You know, we, we just created the space or we just created this We thing have that, the terms and conditions and this violated those, so we have no choice. Ex- exactly. Like, <laughs> no one ever wants to just say, this is toxic, it needs to go. Because they're worried that doing that is going to offend a certain, you know, like no one ever wants to mess with right wing money on this stuff is basically how it works. Um, but, but like, look at what happened to and, you know, last week we did talk about Nike and the problems they're in. But like, look at Nike and about how their shares have gone up like crazy. Yeah. Like clearly by even if it's even as just even if it's just, you know, like mouth service, like taking a stand is good for business in this day and age and so like i think a lot of creators are doing that Mm -hmm. and i feel like there is room in the marketplace and there's room for reader behavior for the platforms in which people communicate and buy things also take stands i would just say like if all this sounds kind of convoluted or disparate you know there's all these different instances of tech all these different platforms and things the one takeaway is that anytime anyone in charge of one of these things, whether it's the person who, you know, theoretically manages the programming behind Amazon or any social site or any other Silicon Valley thing that comes up, you know, that starts to really gain influence in the way we live our lives, like, don't let them say that the computer program did it and not them. You know, like, these are choices made by people. And when, th- when outcomes happen that affect people, they need to own that. And I think that it's rhetorically important that we make that true. And because otherwise we're going to end up as, with a space where people are going to claim neutrality to, in falsely so, to the point where anything good you wanted to happen is completely, you know, it, it, it falls away because, you know, it's, you know, these like false arguments about like, um, you know, well, we have to let them in because of free speech or we have to, you know, we had to scrub, you know, the the word transgender out of our copy because it was deemed offensive by some people. Like eventually someone has to make a more someone has to make someone a stand. has to say that you're wrong. Exactly. Like it's, <laughs> you're, you're never going to get around that. You're never going to be able to outsource that to a computer program. And anyone that says that they're going to needs to be held accountable for that, at least rhetorically. 
And it's all the more true in books where we're having these discussions about who gets who gets to write what, who gets the opportunities, what is publishing going to look like moving forward. A key to that is making sure that the places we sell are not allowed to simply view themselves and talk about themselves as though the, as though they're apolitical, even as they're making political decisions. Yeah. So let's finish it up with one Taloon It May Concern. Mm. Eric, can you please read this week's selection? All right, here we go. Taloon It May Concern. You like drama. Well, I have fallen for my agent. I'm very mad at myself. We've known and worked together a while. We're close friends. I've never let on, I hope. Neither of us are single. That is not going to change. I'm afraid the answer I'll get will be to fire my agent and cut off contact. I know I would regret that. People are not interchangeable. Maybe I can tough it out. What would you want? Send alcohol and advice. Thanks, Wretched and Reno. Woo! Big one. That is a big we- one. Uh, so I have a few thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Please. Um, okay, so first of all, I feel like it is entirely natural when people are working closely together, especially in creative endeavors, where, you know, like your working relationship is focused around the fact that, you know, this other person gets you, Mm -hmm. right? And, like, believes in you and all that good stuff. Like, I feel like it's perfectly natural for feelings to happen from time to time. Okay. Moving on from that, though, like, that's not the problem. Like, the problem is, is that, like, this question is not how do I get with my agent? It's what do I do? This is bad and horrible that I'm having feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is this is messing with my work. I'm feeling bad. I'm putting myself in a situation that's not fair to my partner. It's not fair to my agent's partner. It's not fair to my agent, etc. Um, and so let's talk about this a little bit. So kind of beyond the fact that like, it's probably a good idea that as, you know, a, a monogamous partner, you you don't put yourself in situations which would cause you to maybe act poorly and kind of pull you away from your current partner. Um, but just considering like the working aspect of this, I feel that when there are unrequited feelings that happen in a workplace right, in a working endeavor, there is obviously, like, it's very emotional, right? And there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes with all of your communications now. Even, um, like, the, the you know, the, the tepid ones, the, right, the basic work Right, because, yeah. because when you are having these deep feelings, there is there's always going to be like happiness or disappointment that somebody behaved in a way that is probably from their end purely professional. Right. Um, But because you have those feelings, um, I think it will cause not very reasonable responses in a lot of ways, like emotional responses. Right. And so like if an agent that you might be having feelings for doesn't like this book and you're frustrated with the editing, like that could turn into something that is not good for business. Like it could turn into resentment. It could turn into, you know, kind of more of a toxic interpersonal relationship purely just because 
you can't help how you feel. Well, it's first and I think that's key. Like first and foremost, this is a work problem. Right. You know, it's definitely a work problem. Um, And so I feel like there are a couple of solutions. Um, Number one is, well, I I don't think right away that you have to dump your agent um, because this is not like an agent problem. This is like a, a this is a you problem. Right. And you have to see if you can fix it before, you know, I mean, if you want to dump your agent, then fine. But it seems like you don't want to. So I think step number one is to stop being friends with your agent, because if that's at all getting in the way of your work, like if being friends with your agent is causing you to have feelings for them, which is getting in the way of your work or might potentially get in the way of your work, stop being friends with them. You know, like don't talk to them on social media so much. Don't have phone calls. Don't send them text messages. Just pull back and make it professional. And if it's still not working, then it's not fair to either of you to be in this situation. Um, And so if it's really not changing and you're not happy, because like you should be happy and really confident in this relationship because you are relying on somebody to like sell your books. I mean, it's an an advocacy relationship. You need to be able to have a conversation without it bubbling over into into more personal feeling exactly exactly and so like if that is not something if you know cutting that friendship um hasn't solved then then i think you need to say goodbye yeah but i mean i I think i echo all that i mean i i think that the key is just to you know try to find a place where especially because it's clear that the person emailing here knows that you know, there's nothing that's going to happen with yeah. this feeling, you know, like, exactly. so, which is a good starting point. And so it's like, the key is to try to figure out a way to kind of manage that in a way that allows for your professional relationship to stay preserved. You yeah. Know? And if so, you can, and if you can't, that's okay. Like yeah. people leave agents all of the time. Yeah. There's no and like moral failing here. It's no. just feelings. You know I mean? It happens. Yeah. But I think, you know, and if you do decide that you do need to leave your agent, um, then, you know, it's, you know, it's time to move on. I don't feel like, you know, we have the same kind of vision for my career, et cetera. Um, and like leave it in such a way that one won't embarrass either of you and two um, will allow for them to give you a good recommendation to your next agent mm. that you hopefully won't fall in love with. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Wretched and Reno, I wish you the best of luck. This is a sucky circumstance, um, but I think that you're thinking about it in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, so go forth and stop being friends with them and then see <laughs> and then go from there. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Print Run. Um, We, again, will be dropping our special episodes starting this week, and we will see you for regular episode next week. Bye.